Hey friends, and welcome to episode 191 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan, and here he's going to be dealing with the sin of Isaac starting in Genesis 26, and along the way he's going to deal with some other things such as did Eve add to the word of God when she fell, and how Jacob, the seed of the woman, replaces Isaac. We really hope that you find this talk informative and encouraging, and as always, thank you so much for listening. We're still camped in Genesis 26, which turns out to have a lot of stuff in it. Maybe this is true of every chapter in Genesis, that you can pull it out and relate it to everything else and see it as pretty central. But I was surprised to discover that Genesis 26 has so many allusions in it that make it transitional. Isaac really is a transitional person between Abraham and Jacob, and the things that happen in this section of Isaac's life are transitional. And for that reason, they refer back, they refer forward, they pull a lot of things together. I'm going to do this in a little bit more detail later on, but let me just quickly show you part of how that is. If you go back to Genesis 2, it says that God created Adam, and then it says, and I want us to think about this order of things, Yahweh God formed the human of dust from the soil, and the human became a living being. Then it says, Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, the land of pleasure in the east. And then he placed the human that he had formed there, and God caused the trees to grow up, tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we have here is God makes Adam, he shows him the two trees, he puts him in the garden, he gives him a wife to guard the garden. Adam has a choice between these two trees. And then he falls. If we look at the narrative of Isaac's life, what's odd about chapter 26 of Genesis is there's nothing about Jacob and Esau. We're introduced to Jacob and Esau. We're told that Isaac tends to prefer Esau's food, which we saw relates to the trees. We see the two boys bargaining over the birthright. Then all of a sudden that story disappears and we have Isaac goes down into Gerar. Nothing about the two sons. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 27, we're going to see that comes up again and we have Rebekah and Jacob deceiving Isaac. Actually, this story follows the order of presentation in Genesis 2. Isaac is here. He's presented with the two sons and the two foods of the two sons the fruit of the tree of Jacob, which is domestic food, and the fruit of the tree of Esau, which is game. We're just told about him. Then Isaac is put into the garden of Gerar, which means circle. He's put into this place, and there his wife is there, and the garden is there, and there are potential attacks on both of them, but he protects the two of them, and then after being put in the garden and spending time in the garden, he experiences the fall of Isaac, which we get to in the next chapter, where he 
chooses the wrong son quite deliberately and has to be tricked out of it. So this progression of events shows us that the story of Isaac is expanding on and developing on the story of Adam. We have a creation, a garden, a test, and a fall, which means we have to have a replacement for Isaac. What does the word Jacob mean? It means heal or replacement. And we always think of Jacob as replacing Esau, but in fact, Jacob replaces Isaac. Isaac is unworthy, so the seed has to replace him. And then the next seed has to replace him. And the next seed has to replace him. What does it say in Genesis 3? It says, God says to the serpent, He will bruise your head, but you will bruise him in the replacement. You will bruise the replacement. The replacement of the seed of the woman. And so, Abraham is there, but it's Isaac who's taken up and sacrificed. It's the replacement who is bruised. And Isaac is unfaithful. It's Jacob who's bruised. Jacob is unfaithful. It's Joseph who's bruised. And on down until we get to the final replacement who is bruised is Jesus. So that's all very relevant to what's happening here. And that is an overall structure. I'm going to mention it again because the kind of teaching that I do consists in trying to get you to think a different way and to see patterns. And so we keep going over them, bringing them up again. Today... The first thing we're going to talk about here, the garden allusions in Genesis 26. Let me remind you that Genesis 26 has three sections. Isaac goes down into Gerar because of a famine. This is the second of three famines. It happens pretty much right in the center of the chronology of the patriarchal time. The first famine happens at the very beginning of it, and the last famine happens right at the end of it. He goes down to Gerar, which means circle or region garden. And there he protects his wife. He has difficulty, but he keeps making the place a garden. Adam was told to dress and to keep, that is to cultivate and guard the garden. Isaac guards his wife. Abimelech guards his wife once he understands what the situation is. Isaac develops or cultivates the garden that he has, and when he's pushed from one garden, he goes to another one, to another one. He's doing all the Adamic stuff in this chapter. So there are allusions to the garden here, and some of them are rather pointed, and they stand out in such a way that we're directed to think back to Genesis 2. Abimelech makes Isaac and Rebekah forbidden fruit by saying, Dying, you shall die. Since that's what God said to Adam and Eve, and they repeat it back to the devil. The day you eat of it dying, you shall die. The fact that Abimelech uses the same language in chapter 26, verse 11, should instantly remind us. Of course, if your Bible doesn't translate it that way, then you wouldn't see that it is exactly the same language. But Fox here says, must be put to death, yes, death. And that's the same way he's translated it earlier, so that in terms of his translation, is consistent, and you say, whoa, that's exactly what we read back in Genesis 2 and 3. There's an allusion here. Whoever touches this man or his wife must be put to death. Compare that with neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's the same word. Eve, when she's talking to the serpent, and the serpent says, God says you can't eat this fruit, she says, we're not supposed to eat it, nor are not even supposed to touch it. 
You shall not eat from it, nor are you to touch it, lest you die. Now, some people have said Eve is adding to God's word there. All God said was don't eat it. But you see, what does touch mean over here in Genesis? It means become involved with. Whoever gets involved with this man or woman in a negative way, whoever grabs them, whoever touches them, must be put to death. But when Eve says, whoever touches this fruit must be put to death, all she's doing is expanding on the idea of eating the fruit. Eating the fruit is parallel to getting wrongly involved with it. And of course, if you go over to the laws of uncleanness later on in Leviticus, you'll find that the things that you eat and the things that you touch are the things that make you unclean. They're parallel as far as the unclean food is concerned. So I think it's a mistake to say Eve added to the word here. Rather, she'd been meditating on it and she rightly saw the implications of it. If you don't eat it, then you don't get involved with it. Just leave it alone. Abimelech's using the same language here. Don't get wrongfully involved with these people. Well, that's another allusion back. Whoever touches this fruit must be put to death. Whoever touches this man or his wife must be put to death. Then another allusion, the fact that the second well is called Sitna or Satan, which is another allusion leading us to see that Satan attacks the bride in the first story here, and he attacks the garden in the second story, and then he's defeated in the third story. In the first story, Isaac is afraid that one of the men might Clintonize his wife, so he acts to protect her, and there's an implied Satan attack there. In the second story, every time he digs a well and sets up a garden, they're fighting him for it. So Satan's attacking the garden, trying to take it over. But then in the third story, Satan's defeated when the people who he thought were on his side come and change sides. And they side with Isaac and Yahweh. Remember back from Genesis chapter 2 that Eve is parallel to the garden because she is in the garden. Therefore, she has to be protected just as a garden is. When God says, I want you to cultivate the garden, and I want you to guard the garden, and he puts the woman in the garden, that means I want you to cultivate the woman, have children with her, and guard the woman. And so that's what Adam's supposed to do. Guard his wife, which is parallel to the garden. And if we were to go through Leviticus, we would find there are symbolic parallels between women and gardens. As a matter of fact, the Song of Solomon is full of that. So, the fact that Eve is to be protected the same way the garden is, that's picked up here. Rebecca is parallel to these wells. The fruitfulness of wells is parallel to the fruitfulness of the woman. We studied that a while back. That's why you always find your wife at a well. And conflict over Rebecca in the first story is related to conflict over wells in the second story. And Satan is attacking both the garden and the woman, and he's defeated when his human serpents change sides. So Isaac is a faithful man here. He's doing what he's supposed to do. We haven't come to the fall of Isaac yet. Now there's a difference between these two stories, because this one is expanding on showing us more about what it means. Adam's got these two trees. He's got a garden and a wife. He doesn't protect them. He takes the wrong tree and falls. With Isaac, it's a bit more complicated. Isaac starts out protecting the wife in the garden. He's got two sons, which are the next generation down, and their food. So his fall comes in terms of his sons. Satan is enmity with the woman and with the seed of the woman, Genesis 3. 
Enmity I will put between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Genesis 3, the fall of man, Satan attacks the woman. But in this story, he's defeated on the woman thing, but when it comes to the seed thing, well then, that's where Isaac's sin will take place. Now as we kind of draw this to a conclusion, because we've already expanded the passage, let's talk a little bit about Isaac's character. What can we say about Isaac that we need to bear in mind as we read more about him in the future? Well, we know that he already prefers Esau's food. He already prefers the food from the wrong tree. But this sin has not yet taken hold of him totally. That's true in our life. Everybody's got sins in their life, but you trust as a Christian that your sin hasn't just overwhelmed you to where it's consuming you. This is going to happen with Isaac. Isaac will get consumed by his sin and have to be rebuked for it real harshly. Up till now, it's just a failing. You know, it's a failing on his part that he prefers the wrong food. It's going to graduate to being a real high-handed major affair. So this is a rounded character here, a person who has good aspects and bad aspects. And Isaac's got some bad aspects, but essentially he's doing the right thing. He is still essentially a righteous man, and his actions are exemplary. Isaac's patience and meekness show what Adam should have been like. For one thing, Isaac instructs his wife correctly, as Adam did not, preparing her for conflict. When Satan came to Eve in the garden, Adam is standing right there. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, look at how I want you to handle this situation. Just don't talk to that snake. Honey, I just don't want you talking to that snake. Stay away from him. He doesn't advise her at all. He just stands there and waits to see what would happen after she eats the fruit. And when she doesn't keel over, he has some too. Isaac, however, takes the time to instruct his wife and say, hey, let's do this. We're going into a dangerous situation here. We're going to be up against some potential serpents. You be careful. Tell them that we're brother and sister. That way they'll leave us alone. Or if they want to mess with you, they'll have to come and talk to me. And actually that works. We don't read of anybody messing with her in this situation. They seem to have respected it on this occasion. Isaac instructs his wife, not standing by silently and letting her fall. Yahweh does the same at Mount Sinai, and Jesus does the same in his teaching, instructing us, preparing us for the conflict. Yahweh says, you're going to go out and you're going to have these difficulties. This is what I want you to do. Be aware. Be shot. Crafty as a serpent, harmless as a dove. What did the serpent do? He deceived. Being crafty as a serpent and harmless as a dove means that you use deception when it's the right time to do so to avoid conflict with wicked people. doesn't authorize you to lie about people. doesn't authorize you to go around deceiving people constantly all the time over minor issues. But if it's a life and death situation, you can deceive the wicked. Being wise like the serpent. Isaac protects his wife and himself, secondly, by avoiding conflict with potential seducers. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus conceals the full truth about himself until his hour comes, and he often exhorts people not to say what they've learned about him. You know how that's true in the Gospels. We call that the messianic secret. Don't tell people what I've done. Jesus admonished him sternly, Tell no one, but go back home. But they went out and told everybody. Remember those stories that are in the Gospels. Well, Jesus is concealing there's a certain amount of deception. He's not lying. Isaac didn't lie. He said, she's my sister, which is true. He just didn't tell him everything. Jesus goes around saying, yeah, I'm Jesus. 
He just doesn't tell them everything because it's not the hour of revelation yet. And why? Why does Jesus do that? To avoid conflict. Because when the word does go around that he's done all these miraculous things, he becomes so notorious and famous that he has to go into hiding for a while. Everywhere he goes, people are hanging around him like a rock star. Heal me. And it brings him to the attention of the authorities. He doesn't want to have the authorities looking at him yet. When Jesus decides that it's time to confront the authorities, what does he do? He heads to Jerusalem, and just before he gets to Jerusalem, what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And anything secret about that one. Now everybody says, whoa. Remember, that happens right before he comes to Jerusalem. Then they all say, oh, hail king of the Jews. But until that time, he conceals. Isaac does that. Isaac is being good. He's showing us something about Jesus. He avoids contact with those who would attack. And that's not just practical advice. It's messianic advice. There's a time when God forces it on you. Then you have to deal with those who are going to attack the kingdom. But you don't go out and ask for it. Protestant reformers did not go marching up to the Roman Catholic bishops, those who hated them, and shake their fists in their face and say, Burn me, I dare you. Reformers traveled around Europe with fake passports, lying about their name. You know that? When Calvin has seen four of his friends killed in Paris, when he fled, he had an ID card that said Billy Bob Jones, but didn't say John Calvin. They didn't hesitate to conceal who they were, deceive, avoid trouble, flee, stay out of the way, because then you can dig a well. We can minister to these people over here. We can get these churches going. We can build things up. We can grow some crops. We can develop a church underground. Avoid the commissars. <laughs> Avoid the IRS. That's why you don't get involved in the tax revolt. Because you're just calling attention to yourself, making trouble for yourself. People I've known who've gotten involved in not paying their income tax because they're going to take the government on. That winds up being their life 365 days a year. They're in constant conflict. That's all they're thinking about. They don't have time to dig any wells. They don't have any time to plant any terebinth. They don't have any time to put up any altars. All they're thinking about is their big conflict with the government. No, you avoid that. You avoid that so that you can do this other stuff. And when it comes, I mean, when FICO and when those guys show up and they're at your door and they say, hey, we want to talk, well, then you got to talk. But you avoid it as much as possible. If you've got a wonderful, righteous king, that's different. We talk to Jesus all the time. Well, at least we're supposed to. But... We avoid these guys. Jesus does that. Isaac does that. Because there's a time to have the open conflict and there's a time to build people up and dig the wells and avoid conflict. Isaac's doing good here. He's exemplary. Third, Isaac doesn't fight Satan. Isaac lets God defend him. That's what Jesus does. When Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, he doesn't say, I rebuke you. He says, the Lord rebuke you. He quotes the Bible. He uh, lets God defend him. Jesus doesn't defend himself, at least in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus stands before his accusers silently. Now, John's gospel is written to show us how to act in union with Christ. And if you notice, Paul, when he's put on trial, he does defend himself. 
And in John, which is written to show us how to act, Jesus defends himself. He chews out the high priest. He chews out Pilate. He knocks the soldiers down. He still goes to the cross, but Jesus is not quietly being led off in John. John has a different purpose. And I'm not saying that one is historically false or true. They're just given different sides. But in the Gospels, Jesus waits for God to vindicate him. Isaac does the same. Isaac says, okay, you want this? Well, I'll move on. That's really what Adam was supposed to do with Satan. Basically, he was supposed to ignore Satan. If you ever stop to think, what was Adam supposed to do with that serpent? Grab hold of him and throw him out? Sharpen a stick and kill it? But what does Jesus do in the Gospels? He just avoids Satan. And then he's made king, and then he casts Satan out of heaven. That's what Adam was supposed to do in the garden. Just ignore the guy. Hey, Eve, let's get away from that tree. Just ignore that guy. Stay away from it. And then when you're ready, God makes you a king, and then you can kick the serpent out. Until then, you just don't pay attention to it. They say, hey, want to fight? You say, huh? Don't want to fight? You want to fight? Go fight somebody else. I'm going to go over here and dig a well, okay? If it's not okay with you, I'm still going to dig a well. You want to find me over this well? Okay, I'll go dig another one. And then one day God says, Here, I'm going to give you an Excalibur here, and you can go chop that serpent in half. But until you're given Excalibur, you don't do it. You just stay out of trouble. That's what Jesus did until he was made king. That's what Adam was supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to yield to Satan. He wasn't supposed to fight him. He was just supposed to ignore him, avoid him. And that's what Isaac does. Let God defend him. Fourth, Isaac does not capitulate when falsely accused, but lets God defend him. He doesn't say, oh, I'm guilty. He does stand up, but he lets God defend him. Jesus does the same. When Jesus is arrested, he doesn't say, I'm guilty of anything. He says, I'm not guilty of anything. But... He does allow himself to be taken to the cross, and then he's vindicated. As a result, Isaac is given open spaces. Adam might have been. Think back to your geography. Here's the land of Eden. Here on the east side is the Garden of Eden. And here's the land of Havilah down here. If Adam had been faithful in here... He would have moved to open spaces, bigger spaces, instead of this nice little planted garden here. Well, Isaac does that. He's faithful. He gets to open spaces. These names are important. Jesus is given open spaces. Jesus lives his whole life in this little itty-bitty place over here called Palestine. What is it, about ten miles across here? He's roaming up and down in here. When he was a kid, he went down to Egypt and came back. But other than that, his whole life is in this little itty-bitty space. Then, when he's made king of kings, he's given the whole world open spaces. And then we see that when this happens, because of Isaac's faithfulness and his humility, God gives him the kingdom, and then the Gentiles come and they join in covenant with him. And, of course, that's what happens with Jesus. He's given the kingdom, and then the Gentiles are brought in. So those are some things about Isaac's character and about what's going on here that are worthy of reflection, not only of what they teach us practically, but also how they show us how the kingdom works, how it was supposed to work with Adam, how it worked with Jesus, how it worked with Isaac. And then a fourth point about Isaac's character is that his behavior is a lesson to Jacob 
who will behave the same way with Laban. This story, as I've said before, so many, many times, this story is just a short version of the big story that Jacob's going to have. The son of Isaac is going to walk through these same paces, only we're going to get a much bigger expansion. He's going to go into a strange land. People are going to fight him not over wells, but over flocks and over daughters. The stories are parallel. We looked at that actually only once a few weeks ago, and of course we'll look at it again. But both the first story in both of these cases concerns patience in holding or getting brides. When Jacob goes into Aram, he works for his wives for 14 years. And he has kids. And the conflict and difficulty over the brides is the first story. The second story in both cases concerns holding and getting a garden. Isaac is planting in the land and he's reaping and he's having to move on and he's having to dig another well and he's having to move on and dig another well. In Jacob's case, after he's gotten his wives, he still doesn't have anything but wives. Laban says, I'd like you to stay around. And so he asks for the speckled and spotted and polka-dotted sheep, goats. But then we read later on that Laban changed his wages ten times. Every time it looked like he was getting a lot of sheep over here, boy, look at all those spotted sheep. Laban says, I don't think we'll do the spotted sheep thing anymore, Jacob. I think maybe just the speckled sheep. And, you know, a year later, whoa, look at all those speckled sheep. You know, Jacob, I think we'll go back to You can have the spotted sheep. From now on, I'm going to take the speckled sheep. Constant changes. I went through this in the job I had. Every time it looked like I was about to get ahead, my salary was changed. They come up with one deal. Well, we'll pay you this to do this. We'll pay you that to do that. And we've got your salaries made up a whole bunch of different little pieces. This piece over here started to get big. It was cut off. So I think that different people in different parts of their lives live with this. But Jacob, we learn... He's not digging different wells, but he's constantly having his situation change to where he's having to respond to it. Nobody's giving him any stability. He's having to deal with an envious person who's trying to prevent him from getting ahead. After that, you get false accusations. They bother you for years. When that doesn't work, then they accuse you falsely. Jacob's accused of stealing all this stuff. Well, he didn't steal anything. Abimelech accuses him of deceiving him in connection with his wife. And the well of Satan, remember, Satan means false accusation. So the second well we saw last time, we moved from conflict to false accusation. And then finally comes a covenant with the Gentile. That'll happen in the Jacob story, it'll happen here. So Jacob can look back and see that his father had been through similar experiences and he could learn from that. He say, well, well, Laban keeps changing my wages here, but you know, my dad had to move from well to well, and he came out ahead. So I'll just keep on moving from spotted to speckled to striped to plaid, whatever kind of sheep I'm going to be given this year. Oh, one other person we can talk about here, just as we summarize, is the Abimelechs. Abimelech, my daddy is the king, or my daddy is king, or the king is my daddy. Abraham has a rougher time than Isaac does with an earlier Abimelech, and I think that what this tells us is something that we can put in our cap, is that the son inherits a more peaceful situation thanks to the father's suffering. 
I think that's true and it's supposed to be true in our lives. The kingdom grows and moves in history. If the parents are faithful, the children should inherit a somewhat better situation. If the parents are not faithful, the children are going to inherit a worse situation. Abraham is faithful. He goes through some rougher times with Abimelech. Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. doesn't touch her, but it's a much scarier situation. And they fight about the wells. And then they make a covenant over the wells. It's pretty much the same story, but at a much more intense level. Isaac's situation is nowhere near as tense as Abraham's was. Isaac gets a whole lot richer than Abraham got in and through the story, and that has to do with fathers and sons. Both Abimelechs are essentially righteous men, but not completely so. We have to see these as Gentile God-fearers. They know who God is. They make mistakes. Their mistakes are recorded for us, but the bottom line on both of them is they want to have covenant with the God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham. And that has to overwhelm the fact that they commit sins. We know David committed sins that were far, far worse than either of these Abimelechs ever committed. But that David was a man after God's own heart. So the fact that we're told of a sin on the part of each of these two guys, the first Abimelech grabbing Sarah, the second Abimelech making some false accusations, the essential character of these men is that they're righteous. And I think we need to take that away with us too. In both cases, their original weak faithfulness matures to greater commitment as a result of observing the patient faith of the righteous. Now that's worth taking into consideration. See, Isaac may say, boy, you know, I'm just having to move from well to well. What difference does this make, you know? But one day, Abimelech comes and says, you know, I've been watching you over the years and I'm just amazed. I want to enter into a closer covenant with this God that you worship. Isaac had no idea that this was going on. In fact, this kind of mysterious behind-the-scenes witness is all over the book of Genesis. Abraham is the same way. Abraham has his conflict. He's moved out to the edges. They're fighting him over the wells. We find that out. And yet he just patiently submits to it. And then they come around and want to be converted. Joseph goes into prison. He sits there year after year. But unknown to him, God is sending nightmares to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh calls for him. The other people's faith can be increased as they observe us quietly submit to these kinds of things. doesn't mean you always submit to everything. But what this story shows us is that the humility of these men turns around and becomes a point of witness and encouragement to the weaker believers, and they become stronger. So that's also something that the passage has for us. Now, on page 30, I've got Isaac chronology down here. It's a little study. Let's just survey this. I think maybe I'll just leave this with you, and you can look at it at home, because it's really kind of a classroom study, and Maybe we want to move on through the text. But it's interesting that if you look at the chronology of Isaac's life, important things seem to happen in 20-year increments. At the age of 40, he's married. At the age of 60, his sons are born. At the age of 100, Esau gets married. At the age of 180, he dies. Also, the number 7 comes into prominence. At 37, his mother dies. At 127, Ishmael dies. At 137, Jacob departs. To Pan and Aram at 157, Jacob returns to the promised land. 
And at the age of 167, Joseph departs to the land of Egypt. You realize that Joseph is down in Egypt before Isaac dies. Isaac never sees him again. Joseph goes to Egypt before Benjamin is born. Joseph had no idea that he had a younger brother named Benjamin while he was in Egypt. Chronology gives you important insights into what's going on in these stories. A third point that I've got down here, just in terms of Isaac's life, although we're about to close off the Isaac part of our study here with the next story about Isaac's sin. Isaac was almost certainly five years old when Ishmael was driven out. That comes from Leviticus 27, which tells you that the age of five is important, and from Genesis 15:13, which says that the people would be oppressed for 400 years. And 430 years from Abraham's call, from Abraham's entrance into the land to the Exodus, 30 years after that, Isaac is five. The oppression would seem to start when Ishmael is mocking, and that works it out that way. If Isaac is five when Ishmael was driven out, then Ishmael was 18 when he was driven out. And because of the parallel between Genesis 21 when Ishmael is driven out and Genesis 22 when Isaac is taken into a strange land and sacrificed, Isaac was probably about 18 when he was offered up. So again, you can look at these passages and study this out on your own. Interestingly, the sacrifice of Isaac on this reconstruction comes midpoint between his birth and the death of his mother. She dies at 37. He sacrificed around 18. That's right in the middle. At that point of Isaac's sacrifice, Yahweh becomes Isaac's father and his natural parents begin to fade. Abraham takes Isaac up and gives him to God. God is saying to Abraham, you're not good enough to be a father. Not anymore. This boy is almost 20 years old. You're going to have to give him up and let me be his father from now on. So put him on the altar and send him up the elevator to me. He doesn't actually have to do that entirely, but the meaning is there. Interestingly enough, Sarah dies at the midpoint between Isaac's birth and Abraham's death. Abraham dies when Isaac's 74, 75. Sarah dies when Isaac is 37. That's exactly in between. Why does God work out these odd features of history? They must have some meaning. I would speculate here at that midpoint Isaac takes over Abraham's role, and three years later he gets a wife and does so. And Abraham says, okay, I'm retiring. I'll go get another wife, have more kids. I don't have to maintain this priestly service anymore. Isaac and his wife are going to do it. Oh, gee, more stuff you can study out on your own. My guess is Isaac was about 82 when he moved to Gerar. Because Isaac's famine comes at roughly the midpoint between the other two great famines. In the year A.M. and on Monday from creation, in 2083, Abraham moves to Canaan. In 2084, a famine drove him down to Egypt. On the other end of that, down at the bottom, with the third thing there, in A.M. 2098, Jacob moves to Egypt two years before that. With the famine, it caused Jacob to send the sons to Egypt the first time. Now, there are 212 years between these two famines. If we add 106 to the date of the first famine, we get AM 2090 would be the time when the famine sends Isaac to Gerar at the age of 82. So that's something to think about. You've got these three famines and you've got a central one, which happens to come 
um, right at or about the center of the chronological period. Why did God cause it to work out that way? Don't know for sure. But it's a feature of the text. as a transition here. And I've given you the dates we know, the reconstruction here, 2188, Jacob and Esau are 20 years old. I would say probably two years later, Isaac has trouble finding game. That would probably be the beginning of the famine. Right after that, the famine drives them out to Beersheba. 2198 is the exact center of his time in Gerar. We know that he was there for a number of years while there was trouble, and then the trouble was settled, and there was a number of years when he was blessed. So somewhere around that's the center, and actually that is the actual midpoint of Isaac's life. Around the time that Abimelech comes and makes peace with him is the midpoint of Isaac's life. From there, Isaac moves back to Beersheba, and I'm guessing a couple of years before we read that Jacob and Esau are living there, and Esau gets married at the age of 40 in 2208. So that stuff, if you want to sit down with your Bible, study it out, you can. Isaac's experiences in Gerar, his humiliation, then triumph, his death and resurrection, are another midpoint transition. We have these midpoint transitions. The first one, between his birth and the death of Sarah, around 18, Isaac gets God his father. The second midpoint, Isaac gets his wife. We can compare those to the creation of Adam, the son of God, creation of Eve. Yet the third midpoint that comes in his life, as we've looked at these midpoints, he's tested and passes the test, compare the test of Adam, and in the fall of Isaac, the mantle passes to Jacob. The first midpoint is between his birth and Sarah's death. The second one is the death of Sarah herself, midpoint between his birth and the death of his father. And the third midpoint is the middle of his life, where he's around 90 years old, right in between 180 years of his life. So those are three midpoints. And interestingly, they seem to shadow out some of the story of creation. He's created, gets God as his father, he gets a wife, then he's tested. Isaac's fall, I, is the fall of the son. And this I do want to talk about just in the last couple of minutes here. Thus we need a replacement son. I've already mentioned this. The word heal means replacement. Jacob replaces not just Esau, but the one who loves Esau, who is Isaac. That's important to see. Because first of all, Jacob replaces Esau. But ultimately, Jacob is the replacement for Isaac. Isaac fails. He just messes up the whole messianic task. Obviously, he's not going to save the world. So in replacement, and the replacement is the son. Actually, it's the seed of the woman. That's why Rebecca prefers him. She knows which one is the seed of the woman and which one is the seed of the serpent, as we'll see next time. Isaac is blind. He doesn't know which son is the right son. Rebecca knows. The statement, you shall bruise him in the heel, back in Genesis, means you shall bruise the replacement of the seed of the woman. Jacob receives a limp. He gets the heel wound. He's the replacement for Isaac. He gets the foot wound. He winds up limping as you know, and as we'll get to eventually. Isaac receives the blessings promised to Abraham, as we've seen in chapter 26. But he proves an unworthy son. A new son is needed, Jacob, the perfect man. Jacob is called the perfect man. He's the replacement son. 
Isaac started out good, but he fell. So as we'll see, he's going to fall. We're going to need a replacement. As we shall see, by rejecting the foot wound of not getting good food, Isaac receives the head wound of blindness. Blindness is a wound in the head. In Genesis, you got to take that kind of thing into account. If you're on Satan's side, you get wounded in the head. And in this book, somebody becoming blind or being hit in the head or anything like that is pregnant with meaning. Just as Jacob limping as he crosses the river is pregnant with meaning. He's got the foot wound. He's the Messiah. Or he might have been, except that you know he blows it. And then his sons have to come and they blow it. And so forth. Till down to Jesus. Jacob's food was food that came from wells. But that proved to be not good enough for Isaac. Now just do think about this. How does Esau get his food? He roams around. He's the crown prince. He's the firstborn son. He doesn't have to work. The servants are there to do everything he wants. And as the crown prince, he gets on his horse and he rides around and he hunts all day long. He goes on fox hunts. The incredible in pursuit of the inedible. Isn't that what Oscar Wilde called a fox hunt? Something like that. He's just out having a good old time all the time because he's the crown prince. Jacob, on the other hand, is staying at home keeping books. Jacob's food that Jacob provides is the food that grows from crops and from sheep and oxen and domestic animals. In other words, the food that Jacob provides is the food that comes from the wells. Well, what is Isaac doing in chapter 26? He's digging one well after another. He digs a well for his sheep. That's what wells are for. When we find Rebekah at the well, it's so that she can get water and water the camels and the sheep. When Jacob meets Rachel at the well, they're getting water to water their sheep. And Moses meets Zipporah at the well. It's to water the sheep and stuff like that. That's the food of Jacob. Goats and sheep. In fact, we'll find that out. Next chapter, Rebecca's going to say, go out and kill one of these goats around that well over there and I'll dress it up, spice it up, and it'll taste like deer or gazelle. Because your dad's too stupid and blind to do what's right in the situation. So when Isaac is doing right, he's digging wells, he's developing agriculture, he's building stuff up, he's not just drifting around hunting. And the son of the wells, the son who is keeping the books, the economist, the bookkeeper's son, he's the one associated with the wells. But Isaac decides that's not good enough. God gives him these wells. God gives him all this prosperity. He doesn't care about that. Next week, we're going to see Isaac just despises all that. He doesn't care. God's given me all these wells. He's given me all this water. He's given me all these sheep. He's given me this agriculture. He's given me a son who can carry all this on. I don't care about it. He rejects and despises all the things God has given him, and he wants the son who goes out and is a hunter-gatherer. The aborigine son. That's what he wants. So it's pretty serious sin here. This food choice thing here is a whole choice in terms of what kind of civilization you want to have. A hunter-gatherer civilization, which isn't a civilization at all. It's just a bunch of barbarians barely eking out a living. Or do you want something that's growing and developing? A garden. Isaac's going to reject the garden. So, Jacob's food is the food from the wells. It's an important thing to understand. 
Number five here. Isaac did the good work of the son to begin with, but did not persevere in the end. Jesus, on the other hand, will never fail us. Jesus will dig wells and He'll protect us and He will go on and finish it out. And finally, I want you to see this. The last two things down here. Isaac dies at 180 years old. The very next year is the year that Joseph comes before Pharaoh. In other words, you don't notice this in the text. You have to look under the text at the data that's there. But the death of Isaac is related to the ascension of Joseph. Joseph's in prison. Joseph, I think, would have stayed in prison forever except that Isaac died. And Isaac has already been set forth very early on as a sacrificial ram. And there's a sense in which the death of Isaac makes it possible for Joseph to get out of prison and become the king's right-hand man. Now, I'm not just dreaming that up. Later on in the Bible, where do we see exactly the same thing? What happens when the high priest dies? Everybody who's imprisoned in a city of refuge gets to go home. What happens when they're in the wilderness? They're wandering in the wilderness. They would have stayed in that wilderness for a thousand years except what happened. Aaron died in Numbers chapter 20, is it? The very next thing after the death of Aaron, it says they began to invade the promised land. It was the death of Aaron made it possible for him to get out of the prison of the wilderness. The death of the high priest makes it possible to leave a city of refuge. The death of Isaac, I think, is in a hidden way related to Joseph getting out of prison. Well, folks, next week we will begin our consideration of the next story and the story of the deception of the tyrant by the faithful in what Rebecca tells Jacob to do. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.